The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. There are as many as one and a half million people in Rafa who, for the most part, are people who have been displaced because they fled their homes, thinking they would be in a place of safety. And I'm very concerned about where they would go and what they would do. It's the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. And Vice President Kamala Harris there raising concerns. Of course, Israel has given a warning to Hamas. You either give up the hostages you're holding or we're going to invade the city of Rafah. So, um, look, my heart goes out to those in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Their homes have been turned to rubble. Um, I totally understand where Israel is coming from. They're they're thinking, hey, this is it. We're going to eradicate Hamas once and for all. And we're not going to stop until that objective is done. But boy, there's a lot of suffering, isn't there? Uh, At the southern end of the Gaza Strip, there is right now about a million refugees who are sheltering. And I I take for granted, I, I woke up in a comfortable bed and took a hot shower and I could shave, I could open a refrigerator and there's food. Right, I mean, we're blessed here in this country. We really are. I mean, think about it. How would you like to sleep? And I, I look at these migrants too, and I know not many people seem to have a lot of compassion for them, but they're, they're from all over the world. They're sleeping in wet, rainy, cold conditions. I mean, it's it's stuff. I have a heart full of compassion uh, for people, and I, you know, when when you live in America and you've got uh, all these comforts and amenities, it's easy not to. I guess feel for the plight of of others. I'm not making excuses. This is not a diatribe on on migration and whether or not they should be here or not. I, I just think of the people who one day they're living their lives in in the Gaza Strip, and next thing you know, Hamas, this terrorist organization, is kidnapping and murdering people, and hell erupts. Right, literally, a hell erupts. It becomes incarnate there in the Gaza Strip, and now you've got a million people hemmed in the uh, city of Rafa, and uh, we're talking about perhaps um, even more devastation, more loss of life. Hamas leadership doesn't care. That's the other thing. They really don't care about the safety of these refugees. They do not care. And this is the problem in the culture today at large outside of this. It's about the lack of respect for the dignity of the human person for life. Whether it's in the early stages of development within the womb, whether it's at the end of life, or whether it's somebody migrating or or, or you know being forced out of their home due to to war. You know, the only thing Hamas cares about is protecting themselves. And Israel says, look, we're going to give you a date. You have until March 10th, which is the start of Islam's holy month of Ramadan, to release these hostages. Let them go. We're going to give you time. Now, Israel's already conducted airstrikes on the city. It's poised to send its army in. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has told the leaders of the nation concerned about civilians, hey, There's a lot of space north of Rafa uh, where they have to go. And uh, he told everyone that he's spoken to, to, uh, he said everybody everybody has spoken to in Israel, um, they're not going to end the war until they have complete victory. So meanwhile, what we're seeing at the United Nations, right, there was this resolution that was presented. The U.S. uh, vetoed it, calling for immediate ceasefire in Gaza. They wanted to pass this resolution. Uh, U.S. said no. Here's a... um, Here's a little insight. Maggie, this is NBC News. If we're getting this, this is a package from NBC News. We'll give you a little insight on why the U.S. vetoed 
the UN resolution for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, did that get, Maggie, did that go over? Okay, I hope people heard it. <laughs> I'm not sure whether the clip went over. I, I didn't get a chance to hear it in my feed here in the studio, but I'm assuming you were able to, uh, uh, to, to hear that. So here come my engineers right now. We'll try to resolve that. If you didn't get to hear it, we will rerun that. But uh, let me just summarize what went down. The, the U.S., as I said, vetoed a U.N. resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire there in the Gaza. And uh, there were reports that Algeria you know, proposed the idea, which included the delivery of aid to the Gaza Strip. And Israel's compliance with the orders uh, of the International Court of Justice and for all parties and to respect our applications under the international laws, what Algeria put forth. But the U.S. said, nope, we've already told you that we were going to veto this, and that's exactly what they did. Maggie, do we have it now? Should I rerun that? Let's try it one more time. Let's see if this goes out over. If not, we won't run it. Now, this comes as Israeli go. Prime Minister Netanyahu continues to threaten a ground incursion into southern Rafa. That is the southernmost city in Gaza, whether or not a ceasefire deal is reached. Now, he said those who want to prevent us from acting in Rafa are basically telling us lose the war. That is a direct quote from Prime Minister Netanyahu. And the reason they fled there, the reason they thought that Rafa was safe is because the Israeli military told them it would be safe. Now, this morning, new video shows funerals in Rafa, Bonnie bags after overnight Israeli airstrikes. And back in Israel, families of the hostages growing increasingly frustrated with Netanyahu's government protesting last night, demanding the resignation of the prime minister. So it continues. Uh, it will come to the head soon, though. We'll see what happens as of March uh, 10th. So pray, pray, pray. I, 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 we have a chapel right outside my broadcast booth here, and it is beautiful. I would love to show it to you. Maybe one day I'll take my cell phone out and I'll stream it live for you so you can you can check it out. It's stunning. And I get to pray there every day. And while I'm on the air, I know that the Blessed Sacrament is not that far away from me. Uh, I always go in before the broadcast. I pray for these issues I'm going to deliver to you because we need world peace. We really do. I think times are, are troubled. So I invite you to do the same thing. I'm going to continue to remind you to do that. Please pray for the conversion of our world leaders and for peace in the world that you and I never, or our children, have to see the ravages of, of war. And pray for the conversion of hearts. I mean, th there's. I think Satan's very active in the culture today. There was a church I just read about that was vandalized, this time in Queens, New York. I don't know if you heard about this or not. There was a man, he walked into St. Rita's church. He picked up an orange construction cone and he threw it, apparently hit the statue of the Blessed Mother. Um, instead uh, of hitting the statue, it went through a stained glass window. It was valued at $10,000. So, you know, Satan hates Our Lady, doesn't he? He hates her in a special way. This guy, who knows, he probably had mental illness or something else was going on, throws this cone, misses the virgin, goes through a $10,000 window while a prayer meeting was going on. First, and nobody was injured. Uh, no suspects in custody. He walked out and I guess disappeared. So we'll have to pray for him as well. Maggie, you were telling me about more church persecution. I kind of dialed back on this. I was reporting it a lot, but I, it was almost becoming too much. I, time after time after time, I'm hearing more cases of church fires and vandalisms, both here in our country, but also abroad. You were telling me about what was going on in Ireland. Yeah, there's a video floating around um, by Catholic Arena. They posted this just earlier. Um, it says, a priest's house was deliberately set on fire in Ireland uh, and large fire on the grounds of St. Bridget's Church St. Bridget's Cathedral in oh. Kildare Town. It's horrible. 
Absolutely horrible. Um, you know, I don't know what motivates it. I think, you know, somebody could have mental illness. They could have a vengeance. They could have anger. I, I don't know. Uh, it's, just, it's just sad. You want a little good news? I'll give you some good news. All right. Speaking of, of churches, I, if you live near New Jersey, if you're in the Garden State, you might want to uh, hop in the car. Maybe if you're somewhere else, you may want to shoot over there too. Uh, this weekend at the uh, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Oratory in Mount Clare, this is kind of cool. They're going to be hosting a display of the relics of of our Lord. So what are the relics? Well, there's going to be a splinter of the cross that Christ hung on. There'll be a piece of the thorns, the crown of thorns that pierced his head, caused him unimaginable pain, a piece of Christ's tomb, a piece of a column on which Christ was bound and whipped prior to his crucifixion. And they'll also have, according to this uh, this display, um, relics of the nativity, such as a piece of the Blessed Mother's veil, a piece of the crib that Christ was laid in, the, the manger, and actually parts of the bones of the three wise men. So the display is going to run till noon, uh, noon to 7, 7 p.m. Eastern. I'll give you the church again. Maybe you're in the area, or maybe you, you just say, hey, let's take a road trip. Uh, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Oratory in Mac- Mount Clair, Illinois. Pretty cool. We had spoken to Father Martins, couple days ago, Carlos Martins, I think his first name was, um, about the St. Jude tour, which is heading to the southern part of the country. It's probably down in Georgia or Florida now. You could do a search for that. Uh, Saintoftheimpossible.com is it. But so many miracles have taken place. I heard uh, Apostle of the Impossible. Th- uh, Apostle of the Impossible.com. Thank you, Maggie. Amazing story with him. Right? I mean, he shared a story about a baby who needed to be intubated. I shared that again yesterday. And, and these lungs, which were non-existent, uh, regenerated, you know, they went from 40% to 60% to 80 to 100. And the child was completely healed. So nothing is impossible with God. If you have a special need or an intention, you know, maybe make a pilgrimage to some of these holy places. Of course, you can join me in about 45 minutes. I'll pray the chaplet and maybe have someone else that you are praying for join us as well. We should really spread devotion to the chaplet. Let others know about it. Oh, in fact, tomorrow, you don't want to miss my broadcast. Tomorrow, I'm going to give you an insight into something that surrounds me, and that's the image of divine mercy. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the day Christ revealed the image to St. Faustina. Uh, there are so many miracles of protection and healing and and uh, so much more with this. Plus, I'm going to give you a little history you're not going to hear anywhere else. Um, I, I just, In fact, I just discovered this. I just found out from a friend where the very first image of divine mercy ever hung in this country, and it dates back to even before the... Divine Mercy Devotion was ever even approved. It's an amazing story. So I'm going to give you a look at the image tomorrow and and so much more. It should be a lot of fun. Hey, one final story here, and I, I think this is a strange one. You know, we were talking a lot about politics yesterday. I know that pushes a lot of people's buttons. I apologize for that, but I think it's well worth the, the conversation. Uh, a historian has uncovered a fascinating link between President Biden and President Abraham Lincoln. Did you hear about this? Apparently, President Biden's great-great-grandfather, his name was Moses Robinette. He was a civilian veterinarian during the Civil War. And overnight in the camp, he apparently said something derogatory to a cook uh, about another civilian employee. So John Alexander uh, overheard it. He was the guy. And he attacked Biden's great-great-grandfather, Robinette. And uh, apparently Biden's ancestor pulled out a pocket knife and he cut the guy 
several times. I shouldn't laugh. It's not funny, right? I mean, you, you see this brawl uh, unfold. Hey, people intervened. I guess he was disarmed. Robinette was tried. He was sentenced. Actually, had to go to jail. He had to do hard labor. This is, again, President Biden's great-great-grandfather. Um, well, his superiors went to Abraham Lincoln, and they said, look, the sentence is way too harsh. Lincoln agreed, and he was pardoned. So what? Joe Biden's great-great-grandfather pardoned by Abraham Lincoln. Also, though, maybe explains a few things. <laughs> You'll wonder, though, will Joe Biden pardon President Trump if he gets reelected? I don't know. We will have to we'll have to see about that. Anyway, we got a lot to talk about. Hey, let me put on your radar one other thing, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, the Men of Christ Conference. I just I just found out about this. I was asked to speak at the, one of their conferences years ago. Um, and if you are a guy that's listening, um, this is something you may want to get plugged into. This is now becoming a national event, and I'll get you plugged into it. Uh, we often talk about the problems in the country right now. It, it, so often, I think it's clear to say that men in our country face great challenges. Uh, David Brooks, who's uh, at the New York Times, he outlined it a couple of years ago. He said this. He says, girls are 14 points more likely to be school ready than boys at the age of five. And by high school, two-thirds of the students in the top 10% of the class ranked by GPA they're girls. Roughly two-thirds of the students at the lower end of the scale, guess who they are? They're the boys. So in 2020, at the 16 top American law schools, not a single one of the flagship law reviews had a man as the editor-in-chief. And one in three American men with only a high school diploma are now out of the labor force. So that that's 10 million men, right? Men account for I guess close to three out of every four so-called deaths of despair. There's suicide. There is drug overdoses. And, of course, what's the answer to that, right? What's the remedy? Maybe you lost somebody you love. Maybe, gentlemen, you're going through a tough time right now. Maybe you are despairing. You think life's not worth living. The answer to that crisis, it lies in Christ, right? The God-man, Jesus Christ. He's the one who can give you your identity and your purpose and what you need to rise above the challenges of this life. And there is a conference coming up, and I want to throw this out to anyone who's listening right now. March 9th, you can mark the calendar. It's going to be held in Milwaukee, and it's called Men of Christ. Uh, But even though it's in Milwaukee, men from all over the country can participate. You don't have to fly out either. They're going to do this virtually. Uh, I was just looking at their website before the broadcast. They got some great speakers, and it's going to be a really uplifting um, informative uh, event. Uh, Pat Masterson serves on the board of uh, Christ and focuses on leadership development and coordinating dynamic, uh, you know, men's group leaders. And AJ Garcia is also on the Men of Christ board. He works with Pat on the dynamic men's group leadership. And you can find more about their event and who they are at menofchrist.net. Great to have you both with me, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, Drew. I appreciate you being here. I love what you're doing. I thought I'd give you guys a little coverage so men around the country could participate. I often don't like to talk about just regional events or individual events since my broadcast is national. Uh, But I know that you guys are making this virtual this year, so I thought, you know what? What you do is great. I I looked at your rundown. you got great speakers coming. And, uh, I mean, I thought I'd put on the radar of other people if you want to 
get plugged in. You can mark your calendar again. March is right around the corner, March 9th. It'll be here. So uh, let me let you guys explain a little bit. Uh, I don't know who wants to start, Pat or AJ. Uh, maybe explain what Men of Christ is all about. I know this is your 18th year. It's, that's a long run. Uh, who's going to be there and, and what you hope to achieve? Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much, Drew. This is AJ. Uh, yeah, we're grateful that you'd allow us to to come in and share a little bit more about this. And you couldn't have teed us up any better just talking about the great need uh, of just men to, to lead. And, th- you know, thanks be to God. We have women stepping into those roles. We, we need their gifting, but we also Amen. need men to stand up and respond to that call and just recognize the importance uh, just the answer is Jesus Christ. Like you said, I mean, this, so this started, yeah, 18 years ago around a kitchen table with a handful of guys, and it just kept going a little further and further. They would invite guys in their life, at their parish, in their neighborhood, and each year just gaining momentum and all aimed at getting the man to get the family, to get the community, and then to get the community to retake the culture, reclaim it for Christ, to do that through our parishes. And so while so much emphasis and <clears throat> A lot of our time is spent on developing and building the conference. Like that's just the launching point. That's going to be the place where guys have that first encounter with Christ. If they were raised Catholic, uh, they've been away for a while um, the, for the first time ever or for the first time in a long time. But we hope that will launch into then that community, knowing where they have a band of brothers to continue to, to continue to foster what they experience and keep growing closer to Christ. So that's not about a conference we do. But it's going back to their parishes. It's it's building um, the Catholic culture in in their parish right where they are. So you know, how does this uh, how does a conference cater to men at different stages of of their faith journey? For example, um, you know, my faith journey might be a little different than my adult son or one of my colleagues that I work with with here. Uh, I know there's newcomers that are deep, you know, that, that are coming into the faith. And there's people who've been born and raised Catholic their entire life. And I know it's not just a Catholic event, men of all faiths can come, but um, right. how do you cater to people at different stages and different places in their walk with Christ? Yes, it's, it's something we're aware of. It's something we think about as we invite the different speakers. So, and, and that's, of course, something the, the men that are speaking know. They have guys in their lives that they're reaching out to who have fallen away from the faith. They're talking to guys who are, are fired up and trying to take those next steps to be more faithful and committed. So there's just some, some coaching and direction we give them as they're, as they're getting ready to, to speak. And then uh, so much of the, the time we spend leading up to the conference is encouraging men in parishes all over to think not just about the guys in the pews, but those, those people that are around them, knowing that it will be a place no matter where they are, yeah. they can have that opportunity to, to be yeah. met where they are. So, so, you know, here's the thing. This is not just a local event, like I said, and I think it's really important. I am delighted. I found out you guys are streaming this this year. And I, there's also multiple conferences. I found out that it's not just Milwaukee. I mean, these are popping up in different places um, uh, as well. So if somebody wants to attend, I mean, how do they do that physically? And then, two, how do you do it virtually? And what's happening? Is this soon going to be a national conference in states all across the union? Yeah. Go ahead, Pat. Yeah, I'll jump in. Drew, thanks for having us. Um, yeah, Men of Christ, uh, a couple years ago, uh, this used to be an in-person event here in Milwaukee. And uh, during the pandemic, uh, we had a pivot. And uh, one of the opportunities that we've uh, really focused on is helping build up parishes. This, is, this was the direction from our Archbishop, um, Archbishop Listecki, who has been uh, one of our uh, key shepherds and key leaders here in the state of Wisconsin, as, as well as across the U.S., and so what we have done is we've taken the opportunity to work with dynamic men's groups 
uh, and parishes, uh, not just across our uh, archdiocese here in Milwaukee, but now across the country. So we'll be in eight states this wow, year. Uh, we have thirty. We, we have thirty-four host states. We have uh, over a hundred parishes participating this year. If anybody is looking for more information, they can go to menofchrist.net and um, uh, find out more information. Um, and we are still signing up host sites. So the way it works is the local uh, parish will host uh, mass confession and uh, really focus on inviting men and focus on hospitality. So they're bringing men together in this event. We're focused on the Most Holy Eucharist. And uh, the goal for the day is really build friendships. And we do that with Christ at the center uh, of our day. And that allows um, uh, men of the parish and men of their community, men of all faiths, to kind of come together in that event. And uh, our team uh, works with um, a professional production team. We bring these great uh, dynamic Catholic speakers together. We live stream it out uh, free of charge. Um, all of this is done uh, by donations of men who have been inspired and impacted by men of Christ over the years. And so we offer this to parishes everywhere. Uh, we are in Illinois, Michigan, New York, Florida, uh, North Carolina this year. Uh, so plenty of information awesome. on menofchrist.net. So who's, who's, who's uh, at this event coming up? What will people experience? Who are they going to see? What are they going to hear? What do they come away with? Yeah, the... Uh, Go, go for it, Pat. <laughs> well, yeah, this year's theme is Mastering What Matters. So just in, in, in every way, with the, the primary emphasis on the re- relationship with Christ, we've got someone who was in the military uh, coming in to speak with Sam Blair. We've got Archbishop Listecki will be celebrating ma- Mass and offering a homily for us. Uh, a priest, Father Mark Bernhard, will be talking about just um, the reality of our, just challenging them with the question, like, are you managing sin? Or are you really trying to kill it? And then Dave Durant, just from a leadership perspective, and then Kevin O'Brien, one of the founders of Men of Christ, uh, challenging the men to take everything they've heard from the conference uh, on forward as, as a launching point and not just let it be a, a one-day experience. That's awesome. Well, it's great. So if people want to get connected, the best way to do that is simply menofchrist.net? Yeah, that's right. Menofchrist.net. Go for it, Pat. Yeah, they can uh, they can go there. They can find out information. They can even register their parish uh, to be a host site. Uh, one of us from our leadership team will reach out to them. And in a very short amount of time, we can get them up and running. Uh, the conference is two weeks out. We're still signing up parishes uh, as we continue to go here through Lent. It's a great opportunity, I think, from a, from a Lenten renewal standpoint as well for the men. Well, it sounds great. Guys, I hope you have overwhelming success. I think we need this. I think uh, men who attend these events are coming away invigorated and fired up. I remember many times um, having attended them myself, I'd hear or if I talked about them on the air the next day, a lot of women would say, oh my gosh, you can't believe how my husband, now he wants to do this or that or how he's changed and the testimonies are, are off the charts. So ladies, encourage your husbands and uh, gentlemen, why not come out? And if you can't make it physically, just go to menofchrist.net. Pat Masterson, AJ Garcia, thank you both for being here. Appreciate your your time and the wonderful work you're doing to serve the church and, and our brothers. You're welcome. Thank you, Drew. Thanks, you got it. It's uh, almost bottom of the hour. We need to take a short pause. Stay with me. When we come back, we'll change gears. We've got a lot to talk about. I'll be right back. Hey, today we'd like to thank Tammy, who was listening in Florida for donating her 2016 BMW Z4. 
You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. ESG stands for environmental, social, governance, and it's billed by its proponents, like big asset managers like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard. It's billed as just another investment strategy. You know, you've got uh, Warren Buffett out there doing value investing. You've got big names uh, doing momentum investment. We're, we're over here doing ESG. What it really is, is a stocking horse. It's, it's, a, it's a way to wedge in a far left progressive platform into the management of the world of, of the United States investment funds and to push corporate America to basically just become a political utility for the Democratic Party. They built it right under our noses. This is the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio and RelevantRadio.com. Let's talk about it. Let's talk investing. Let's talk ESG investing. Investing in a business, you know, pretty simple principle, right? You give your money to someone, you start investing already, uh, you know, in owning a business or the business takes the money, puts some kind of product out that they sell, hopefully make a profit on it when the business gives you your money back and some part of that profit, you know, goes back to, okay, you made a profit. But, you know, there's times where you can lose. It's always a risk, right? Um, disaster can lay around the corner. That's the way business works. You you invest in something, some entity, you know, and you hope it, it, it moves in your favor. Not always the case. Um, there have been a lot of scams that are out there. I know a lot of people have been conned by guys like Bernie Madoff and Madoff and, you know, and, and others out there. But, you know, that's the minority of investments. Otherwise, you know, people get into investing in order to make money. Um, over the last few years, there's been a movement that wants to change all that. It's called ESG, and it stands for Environment, Social, and Governance. Three factors that these investors want companies to base their business decisions on. Environment, social, and governance. Environment, of course, means that they want companies to go green. The social factor means they want companies to go along with whatever the latest politically correct social movement is. So you get it, right? You get Bud Light using a man who thinks that he is a uh, a woman to promote beer, and you saw what happened, right? How did that go for your investment? How much money did Bud Light lose <laughs> as a result of that move? Uh, or you get Target pushing the gay agenda through their merchandise, right? We talked about that earlier in the year. You saw so many people boycott Target. Or you allow, you know, is how many companies are allowing men or women into the opposite restroom? So those are the politically, those are the social factors that these companies want you to invest in. Government Governance means how, uh, how, how the leaders take into account not just the shareholders, but the so-called stakeholders. For instance, 3M. That would mean that people whose, I don't know, houses are, are near factories that have dumped out the so-called forever companies. Uh, you know, chemicals. They've got to be, uh, you know, incorporated into the the, the reasoning for these investments. Uh, I'm joined today by Paul Tice. He spent about 40 years walking on Wall Street at uh, some of the industry's most recognizable firms, including J.P. Morgan and Lehman Brothers and BlackRock, amongst others. And he just came out with a new book. It's called The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System. I don't know what you're invested in. You might want to look at your 401k, your 403b. Maybe you personally invest in a lot of these companies. Maybe you're buying stock. Uh, you may want to read this book. Uh, in recent years, he's taught as an adjunct professor of finance at uh, New York University's Stern School of Business. 
and he's here with me today. Good to have you with me, Professor. Thank you for your time. Hi, Drew. Uh, good to be with you, too. So ESG, I hope I kind of laid that out accurately. Where, where did it come from? How did it start? How did it find its way into to boardrooms across the country? I mean, that's, that's, to me, the most shocking part of this. Yeah, well, uh, even though the, top of the public spin is that this is kind of an investment uh, fad that has come on us, um, you know, sharply over the last few years, you, you can really track this back several decades, uh, really to the 80s. Um, and you can see it as part of a continuum, uh, at least from the perspective of the United Nations trying to implement, uh, you know, its various environmental and, and social policy agenda. So it's, it's intertwined with climate change, sustainable development, and then ESG investing is really the third leg of the stool. Yeah. It's, it's providing the funding and the financing for what is mainly the climate change uh, complex. And a key part of it is, is defunding the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's morally subjective, yeah. non-financial factors. And it's being spun that if you follow this from an investment policy perspective and even a corporate policy perspective, you're going to create long-term value. They never actually define when that long-term actually is realized. And, and the entire premise is, is somewhat ludicrous because, again, these are non-financial factors. They don't drive financial performance. And through no lack of trying, um, you know, the academic world has not been able to produce any research showing that uh, ESG is a positive catalyst. But still, it's being integrated into the markets through the back door. That doesn't make any sense to me, though. I mean, why would any company, which is accountable to their, their shareholders, right, to, and, and their bottom line is to make a profit, why would you allow your decision to be driven by something that's morally subjective rather than financial? Uh, and I can see maybe one company or two going woke, but, but this seems to be infecting a lot of major corporations. Oh, I, I would argue it's, it's infected every firm on Wall Street. Wow and every public CEO, because public companies are, are exposed to more pressure. And I mean, and let's be honest about what's happening here. Uh, ESG and climate change, they are both kind of two-tiered system. Mm -hmm. A different set of rules are applied to the developed world and the developed markets, yep. and then the third world and the emerging markets, including China and yep. India, yep. which are obviously not developing, um, they are given a free pass. So it's, it's logically, you know, indefensible. But I think the fact that uh, a lot of CEOs don't speak up, you know, you have that small subset of firms like Disney yeah. um, and others and like Apple, which they're true believers. And Larry Fink and BlackRock would be a true believer. But I think most public CEOs are just afraid to speak out because if you speak out against ESG, you become the next target. And you're either going to have to deal with a proxy battle at the, the next annual meeting, or you're going to have protesters showing up in your lobby or, or at the next uh, function. And so you become the target. And I, that's worked very well over the last few years huh. to suppress dissent. And, and I'll tell you my personal experience. Yeah, go ahead. You know, I couldn't have written this book until I retired from Wall Street because uh, it was becoming increasingly difficult over the last 10 years of my career to have a differentiated view when it came to climate change or ESG. Wow. So it's not surprising that we really haven't gotten an insider take on this yeah. up until now. You know, you state uh, in your subtitle that ESG is going to crater 
the global financial system. I, that's a bold statement. Do you really believe that's going to happen? And if so, how far off is that? I mean, are we moving to a point of no return? Uh, how do you see that playing out? Well, um, you know, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that, that that's going to be how the future plays out. But we are getting towards the end of, of the timeline. And I do think things between now and 2030 will get more challenging. Yeah. Uh, 2030 is kind of the, the timetable set by the United Nations the World Economic Forum, all of the NGOs um, and nonprofits that are in their, their uh, constellation. Uh, so 2030 is real. And again, this is a 40-year kind of push that the other side has not really backed off from. You know, there have been tactical retreats along the way, yep. but we're still seeing the forward momentum. So I think 2030 is real in their mind in terms of what climate objectives want to be realized. And for ESG, that means creating a global sustainable financial system by 2030. Wow. So, you know, I think over the next few years, what you're going to see is that there's going to be an aggressive defunding of the oil and gas sector. Yeah. And we're already seeing that over in Europe. Europe is kind of the leading edge of this. Mm-hmm. So Europe kind of gives us a heads up about what's coming to the U.S. market. And you're already seeing a number of European banks basically announce that they're going to, to uh, stop banking the oil and gas sector. And eventually some U.S. companies, U.S. banks will, will start that. And then that slowly will, will ripple into the, to the debt markets on the bond side. Um, so I think that's something that we have to focus on. You know, with, with ESG, a lot of focus has been on, on the corporate boardroom mm-hmm. and woke battles. Yep. You, know, uh, you, you mentioned a number of them, but like good example. Uh, I think climate change and what's going on in the financial markets really needs to be uh, – the primary focus here on in, because yeah. uh, that's going to have the most pain, I think, for American consumers, whether you're invested in the market or not. Yeah, no kidding. My guest today, Professor Paul Tice, author of a brand new book. If you uh, want to join the conversation, feel free to sound off. Maybe you're on Wall Street. Maybe you are in big business right now. Maybe uh, you're seeing this where you work. The book is called The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global financial system. And um, I, I sit back with, you, you know, you're, you're talking about energy, climate, things along those lines. And I'm thinking, where's the UN on all this? How are they involved in ESG and ESG investing? What kind of influence are they having? Oh, I, I think they're, they're leading the charge, honestly. I mean, they're, they're clearly, uh, since the 80s, they have been taking the lead on climate change, the IPCC, all of these annual conference of party meetings where they set targets. Um, so they take the lead on both climate change and then sustainable development, which was a, a, a term and a concept that was coined in the late 80s. And both of those are closely intertwined because if you look at the, uh, the 17 sustainable development goals that they passed in 2015, 12 of them have a climate component to it. And then climate also has its own standalone wow. um, uh, goal, number 13. Yeah. So it, it's clearly everything is about climate change. And then, as I said, ESG investing, which was the mm-hmm. third leg on the stool that was constructed in the 2000s, that now is, is getting at the, the funding mechanism for all of this. And so in, in 2006, the U.N. set up an investor group called the Principles for Responsible Investment. Again, another example of kind of um, using language to their advantage, responsible investing, because if, you, if you're not doing that, you're acting irresponsibly. Um, and in the wake of the, the global financial crisis in 2008, they have been very uh, uh, 
adept at attracting a lot of Wall Street investors to join in order to signal their virtue. And coming out of the crisis, that was you know, probably a priority for the industry because you know, for years during the Obama administration, we were hearing about Wall Street wrecking Main Street, um, which I think is a, is a simple way to describe what happened in 08. Yeah, yeah. But every, uh, the, the membership of PRI right now is about, it's over 5,400 investors. So effectively, mm-hmm. if you look at the assets under management, that is everybody on Wall Street wow. is now a member of that group. And that membership carries you know, strict requirements and, you know, number one is to integrate ESG into all of your assets that you manage. And number two is that you have to actively engage with every company that you are invested with. So the U.N. Wow. is behind pushing That's ESG wild. into the financial markets. Um, and the World Economic Forum and some of these others are, are kind of facilitators so you, of that whole process. So you, you really see a paradigm shift then on Wall Street. I think so, and I think a lot of uh, people who work on Wall Street may be not noticing it. You know, part of the, the issue with the financial industry is that, you know, you're told to keep your head down and, and just focus on making money. And the industry is very good at that. It's very good at solving problems. And, you know, ESG was an, uh, initially sold to them that it, you could do it the way you wanted to. Mm-hmm. It, it was bespoke. You can focus on just the financial mm-hmm. ESG factors, whatever that means. And now that you've been suckered into the trade, you can't leave, wow. right? And, and they've been changing the, 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 the rules on you, and now you have to align with the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals. And the big piece of that is you have to get to net zero. Yeah. And so providing financing to fossil fuels, whether it's coal or crude oil or gas, is no longer allowed. So I think yeah. that's going to be the main push going forward. Yeah, well, hold the thought. I have to take a short pause here. When we come back, we'll take a call or two for you. I only have uh, my guest, uh, Professor Paul Tice, for a few moments. And if you want to get in and sound off, feel free to. The uh, number is 888-914-9149. He's the author of a new book called The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System. Spent a couple decades, four of them, on Wall Street. And um, he is uh, sounding the alarm. So feel free to join us. Our conversation will continue with this and more. Don't go away. All the news and issues of the day. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. We try to explain the faith in a really conversational tone so that you can in turn explain it to others. That's the idea. Kale Clark. And we really do count on our listeners here at Relevant Radio to spread the word about what we do. So please share about these programs whether it's the Faith Explained program, the Kale Clark Show, or any of the other great shows that we have on our network. It's great to share them on social media and conversation with friends. Bringing Christ to the world through the media. That's how the word spreads. Relevant Radio. Hey, join Father Rocky this September for a pilgrimage to Poland and Prague. You'll visit the lands of St. John Paul the Great, St. Faustina, Our Lady of Czestochowa, and the infant child of Prague. Seats are limited. Information at relevantradio.com slash Poland. That's relevantradio.com slash Poland. The Chaplet of Divine Mercy, coming up live. Yeah, it's about 10 minutes away. Tell someone else, if you're just joining me right now, we're taking a look at a brand new book, just hit the shelves yesterday, just came out. It's called The Race to Zero, 
how ESG investing is going to crater the global financial system. Sounds pretty apocalyptic. I'll take your calls, too. You can join us. But this is something you may not be aware of. You may not understand how ESG works. My guest today is an author. His name's Paul Tice. He's a Wall Street veteran. He spent 40 years on Wall Street. Uh, he has taught. And in his book, he examines the rise and really the implications of environmental and social governance and, uh, and governance, I should say, in investing. And, uh, you know, rather than, than, than being a genuine effort towards a sustainable development, he argues, look, it's a facade. It promotes a socialist, globalist agenda. It undermines traditional shareholder capitalism. It's an attack on capitalism. And, and he claims uh, that, you know, the agenda is driven by climate hysteria and this, this whole, uh, I guess, economic collectivism, if you would, these progressive social values. And we see that, you know, rear its head in, in very visible ways recently. And, um, you know, he, he thinks it's a, it's a dangerous shift away from shareholder value and, and market-driven decisions to, uh, you know, being influenced by subjective and moral considerations that aren't good for the bottom line. And uh, classic examples, fossil fuel companies who've been unfairly targeted. But he joins me today. The, the subtitle is something I, I want to get back to. Again, the book is A Race to Zero, if you want to read it, How Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System. Uh, professor, it's good to have you back. Uh, and before we jump into the phone calls, I'll grab a couple quick calls for you. Um, let's get back to how you see this unfolding. How will ESG investing crater global financial systems? I would think the brakes are going to be put on this if companies see their bottom line ultimately affected by it, and especially if there's unfair competition by these developing third world countries and, and China. I mean, China should not be in that arena, but give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think it's what's critical now, and it's not a foregone conclusion that we're going to go down this road, but um, you know, I think it was important, and the reason why I wrote the book was to kind of highlight this, since no one really is talking about this sufficiently. But the, the subtitle you know, basically speaks to the fact that you know, if we continue to, to move towards defunding oil and gas, um, every American will feel that because it will constrict the supply of oil and gas production and the laws of, of economics, you know, that's going to drive prices up. And if you drive up energy prices, it drives up the price of everything, including food. So a lot of the inflation that we've seen the last couple of years under the Biden administration, that's going to be child's play going forward if actually you know, the ESG uh, agenda actually succeeds because we, we can't complete this transition that's been started by politicians. This is not a market-based yeah. or demand-driven transition away from fossil fuels. Uh, it's the government trying to restructure the economy. And what we definitely know is we can't complete this transmission uh, transition as dialed right now because we don't have the technology to do it. And we know it's going to end badly because we're already getting indications of that from Europe as well as, you know, different parts of the U.S. We're going to electrify the entire economy. Yep. Uh, we're going to make our electricity grids more dependent mm. on wind and solar, which are intermittent. And so when we have bad weather, um, we're going to have uh, power outages. And mm -hmm. if it's during the winter, that's going to lead to more deaths like we had down in Texas. Yep. And we're going to have to deal with less economic growth because yeah. fossil fuels have driven economic growth and capitalism for 200 years. Wow. So we'll have lower living standards, higher inflation, higher mortality rates. That is what's going to happen. Um, that's really not being an aggressive outlook. Yeah, no so, and that's going to impact every American, particularly lower income strata. So it's going to be yeah. a very regressive tax 
on consumers. Is, well, I'm glad you laid it out. Makes a lot of sense uh, the way you put it. Let's go to Maryland. Matt's been waiting the longest here. Matt, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. How are you today? Uh, we're well, Matt. Go right ahead. You're on the air with uh, Paul Tice. Great. Thanks for taking my call. So um, wasn't ESG and, and sustainable development begun to uh, address negative externalities and market failures, uh, failures in the market to address things like pollution and other aspects of uh, manufacture and, 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 and uh, man- of manufacture to, uh, uh, that weren't addressed in the price of uh, or the cost of mm-hmm. making of making the goods. Good question. I mean, I get what you're saying from the standpoint of uh, um, uh, the oil and gas industry, but uh, don't you see, you know, from the viewpoint of maybe Julian Simon, that there are, are greater uh, goods and greater technologies that will be created in the absence of these uh, of these natural resources. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I would say that. Well, first, most businesses are already, uh, you know, contributing to society. And, and so requiring them to do more than what they're doing, which is create, creating a, a, a product or a service um, that's in demand, hiring people, you know, spreading wealth into their communities. You know, so that, that, that I think is really their, their purview to get them involved with like global issues, which is what ESG is trying to do. Um, you know, it's beyond their responsibility. I think a lot of what we're talking about is the responsibility of government. And I think clearly government has failed in terms of, you know, the objectives that they've sent. But to your point about negative externalities, I mean, if we're talking about straight pollution, you know, you know, particulates in the air, uh, putting chemicals in the water, you know, clearly the U.S. has, has made uh, great progress over the last 50 years uh, cleaning up our water and our air. So real pollution, I don't think, is, is as a, it clearly is not as a problem when I was a kid. Uh, in the third world, it's different, Right. And, and so maybe we should be focusing more of this on the third world and companies therein uh, to figure out how to solve that environmental issue. But if we're talking about straight environmental mm-hmm. damage, you know, I think the developed world, Europe, North America, clearly, you know, is, is leading in that regard. It's only when you talk about environmental pollution and externalities with regard to climate yeah. and carbon emissions, and you talk about the abstract concept of carbon pollution, you know, that North America and Europe are at the bottom of the pack because, again, fossil fuels drives emissions, but it, it's, it's not a pollutant unless you buy into this whole um, argument that CO2 raises average global temperatures that leads to all these catastrophic um, climate impacts. And, you know, I will tell you right now in chapter two of my book goes through it, you know, the, the data doesn't support that. And uh, we don't have historical data to really give us perspective about, you know, where we've been. So we don't really know where we're going. Matt, Matt, I'll let you follow up if you want to. Go right ahead. No, his responses are are fantastic. I I, I agree that whether you see carbon as a a pollutant or not, um, I I certainly, you know, certainly the aspect of, I mean, we know the greenhouse effect effect is out there, but how much, how much is human, how much is, human-made carbon actually adding to that, gotcha. that situation. And I realized that the, you know, the, 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 uh, the hockey stick of temperatures mm-hmm. has, has leveled off and has, uh, and has begun to just, you know, pl- it seems as though it's yeah. plateaued. Yes. And while we can say, yes, every year is hotter than the year before, it's not hotter that, 
it's not hotter than it was than it, there has been projected to be by no, exactly. by uh, by the climate scientists. So well, I appreciate the I pre and, and you're right the externalities from that standpoint in America and, yeah. and the U and, and Europe right. we've done the most to get take care of it. And how can we how can we get that same kind of yeah. Uh, situation going on in the third world. And Matt, Matt, thank you. I appreciate the call. Let me sneak Brad in from Lexington, Kentucky. Brad, you only have a minute or two, so I'm going to let you make your comment and let Mr. Tice respond to him. Okay, thank you. Um, I do I do see that the social aspect of this, um, making um, things that are really immoral in the Bible, um, trying to make those... Um, uh, approved or acceptable i can see that 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 drive but i, I kind of agree with the guy that was just on here that um there i don't see anything wrong with um working on the environment and the air pollution because we right now all right brother let me hold you on that point i, I don't mean to cut you off i have less than a minute i want to give uh, mr tice the final Final thoughts there. I, and I don't think there is anything wrong with making sure that we're good stewards of the environment. But, but Paul, I'm going to give you the final thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, the, part of the problem with ESG is you have to buy into all of it. So, um, you know, some of these issues may be relevant and important, um, but they're better handled by, by other groups, including the government. Um, but, you know, if it's going to be talking about climate change, you know, that, that's a fair discussion to have about whether there really is a problem and there's pollution that we have to address there and who should be doing it. Well, the book is called The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Economy by Paul Tice, T-I-C-E. Available now on all major, at all major bookstores. So check it out. Professor, thank you for being here. Look forward to uh, talking again. Have a great Thanks day. You. I appreciate it. You got it. It's Paul Tice. Uh, stay with me. Chaplet is straight ahead.